So Jesus, in your presence, our shame is undone. We are set free and ask that you'd use your word to help us experience that and, and be so filled with your grace that we give it away. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Good to see you, 945. Thank you all for being here. Those of you on the podcast, thank you for joining us. Uh, one of uh, the students I mentored when I, back when I was a college pastor, he is now a pastor himself. And a while back, I was listening to one of his sermons online, and he started to talk about me. And he said, yeah, when, you know, when I was in college, I had this mentor who was quite a bit older than me. I don't think that was necessary information. And he said, and my mentor wore these white Reeboks, the kind you have to show your ID to buy to prove that you're a dad. And, and my mentor was the exact opposite of cool. What? And then he said, but that's what I loved about my mentor. He wasn't trying to be cool. Okay, actually, I was trying to be cool. Just, like, no one told me those white Reeboks were going to be a problem, right? Now, he was kidding, and he went on to say some very nice things about me. But what stuck? Not cool. That was the phrase that stuck. In part, because, well, it's true. But, but the other reason is because we have an enemy, Satan, whose very name means the accuser. And he loves to accuse us. You're not this enough or that enough. Too much of this and not enough of the other. So I just want to start by asking just who or what are your accusers? Who or what are your accusers? Maybe it's shame over something you've done or a habit that you can't break. Maybe it's someone at work or in your family who just kind of criticizes you all the time. Maybe it's a cultural voice. You're not successful enough. You're not rich enough. You're not doing well enough in your job or at school or you don't look good enough or whatever it is. Most of us feel accused, at least in one way or another, at least from time to time. We're doing a sermon series about how we are living through the kind of titanic cultural shift that comes along only once or twice every thousand years. And these major cultural shifts give us as followers of Jesus in a culture where fewer and fewer people are Christian. It gives us an opportunity to heal the culture, to make it better. And this has happened twice before in Western history. First was the early Christians, the way they transformed the Roman Empire and its culture, not through politics. It, they didn't, politics is important, but that's not how they changed the empire. The, what, what changed it was they lived attractively different lives, joyful even in suffering, more adventurous, sacrificially serving those around them until gradually, one by one, Christianity became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire, and that changed the culture. Pretty soon, the treat, things like the treatment of women got better. Gladiator games just seemed violent and bloodthirsty. The culture shifted. And again, it happened after the fall of Rome for a second time. Europe was re-Christianized in similar ways, which I'll talk about in a different sermon. But history shows that when we live this different life, it can actually gradually shift a culture if we are the people of God. And one of the things that changes us the most and changes culture the most, because culture only changes when we all change, right? What ultimately changes us and the culture, one of the things is this thing unique to Jesus. It's in no other religion, and it's called grace. And you can see how powerful it is in the story that we just read about Zacchaeus, who was a terrible person, but was changed not by laws, not by being lectured at, but by grace. And the text says this. He wanted to see who Jesus was. The verb see means not just see, but to really know who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. And that's not just a physical description. That's actually also a spiritual metaphor. Let me ask you, do you ever feel like you fall short in some way? Do you ever feel maybe sometimes like you're a poser, like, oh, I hope no one finds out I'm not 
as talented as I'm pretending, right? Or maybe it's shame over something you've done. Or maybe, maybe it's just some of the silly little mistakes you make, but they sometimes can make you feel a little incompetent. I, I recently read, I actually didn't know this, I recently read that the original name of our state was Columbia, after the Columbia River, but then they decided to change it to Washington. You know why? So that it wouldn't be confused with the District of Columbia. <laughs> Dude, you had one job. Right, like serious, like, like, I mean, pick a different president. I mean, uh, Millard Fillmore, what? there's no state named after Millard Fillmore, right? Like, I do stupid stuff like that all the time. A lot of times I can laugh it off, but sometimes I'm just like, I'm a loser. And Zacchaeus has a tall reason to feel short. See, he's a tax collector. We read right by that. That was no minor offense. Israel had been conquered by the Romans, and tax collectors charged their fellow Jews way more than the Romans actually charged, and they pocketed the difference. And Zacchaeus got very rich by hurting a lot of people. Hundreds of people lost their life savings because of Zacchaeus. Hundreds of people were not able to support their families because of Zacchaeus. He's a very bad man. Not to mention that he is aiding and abetting a foreign colonizing oppressive army that is running rampage over the world, putting people into slavery, all kinds of stuff. Bernie Madoff is too mild a comparison. He has destroyed lives, but he wants to see Jesus. But the crowd blocks him, and that's also a spiritual metaphor, because it's not just that they block him physically, but when, when, when Jesus shows grace to Zacchaeus, what does the crowd do? It says all the people began to mutter. That is one of my favorite verbs in the Bible. You, know, you can just hear him, right? Like, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner, right? Like, what keeps him from seeing the real Jesus isn't just the physical barrier of the crowd. It's the emotional and social barrier of their condemning, self-righteous, judgmental attitude. Our accusers keep us from experiencing Jesus, whether it's the voices in our head or the voices outside, block us from experiencing the grace of Jesus. And tragically, sometimes folks in the church can be a little bit like the crowd. A couple months ago, King 5 News posted a story on their website about churches in Seattle. And in the comment section on that story, there were some pretty negative comments. People said things like churches. They're just filled with lies, hatred, and judgment. Great chicken dinners, though. At least we got that, right? They only preach what they want to preach. Nothing good ever happens in a church. Okay, how do they know if they don't go? A place, a church is just a place to spread hate and do a whole lot of self-righteous judging and being judgmental of others. You mean a little bit like that comment right there. Now, I've experienced a lot of grace in churches, but like it or not, for some people, the view is we're just a bunch of judgmental people. Now, lately, the issue grabbing the headlines has been gay marriage. And, and let me just say, parenthetically, I get that there are all kinds of viewpoints in this church on that issue. Right? There's 4,000 of you, so I'm sure there's about 4,000 different viewpoints. Or maybe there's 8,000. Some of you can't make up your mind. But what I'm grateful for is that you guys, we disagree respectfully. You are a model to other churches. Plus, there's just a lot of good stuff we actually do agree on, like Jesus like helping to break the cycle of poverty, which we do through things like Kid Reach and Eastside Academy and Jubilee Reach. One person who, who is now in college and is a passionate follower of Jesus says if it weren't for the ministries this church supports, he would either be dead or in jail right now because that's where all of his siblings are. And the data shows that that story represents many, many more just like them. 
So I'm glad that while we disagree, really, we disagree on lots of stuff, we do it respectfully so that we don't put at risk our ability to help people get out of poverty because we got ourselves in a good old-fashioned church fight that consumed a lot of time, energy, and money. But, you know, it's not just that issue. There's a whole host of issues where the church is perceived as judgmental. But I, I want to just say, judgment, being judgmental, that is not a Christian problem. That is a human problem, right? As you can see from some of those judgmental posts, right? Or look at the political things that get posted on, on social media, right? Some of those comments are very self-righteous, condemning, very judgmental of other people. I recently heard a pastor say something I thought was real, kind of profound. He said, take any hot-button issue, take any issue you want, The devil doesn't care so much what side of that issue you're on as long as he can get you to respond with a political or a religious spirit. Political or a religious spirit seeks to be right, seeks to dominate an argument, seeks to win, seeks to gain power, which fractures fractures relationships. Now, it's it's great to have opinions. That's a good thing. We can have our opinions, but God calls us to hold them graciously because as it turns out, accusing people and lecturing them tends not to change their minds let alone change their lives. But love does. You know, the only place that Jesus yells, the only place Jesus gets mad, the only place he yells at anyone is to religious leaders. In one point he says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. In other words, you pastors and you seminary professors, the pimps, the drug dealers, the white-collar criminals, they get it better than you do. Now, yes, absolutely, the Bible tells us not to do certain things. The Bible says don't do these things because it brings spiritual or emotional death. But even when it says don't do these things, it's not to just give us a rule, but so that we can have the best life possible. See, Jesus came not because there was a lack of religion. He came because there was too much religion. And notice what he does for Zacchaeus. He removes his accusers. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today, which meant to go eat with him. And in that culture, that was the highest form of respect and acceptance you could offer. It implied approval. Now, he wasn't approving Zacchaeus' sin, but folks might have thought that. Right? It meant to be in a close relationship where you were part of the warp and woof of that person's life. Jesus wants to be part of the warp and woof of your life and mine. And the reason Jesus can silence Zacchaeus' accusers is because just a few verses later, he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and five days later is crucified for your sin, my sin, and the sin of everyone else. Several years ago, after the service, a World War II vet who has since died, asked me after church, do you think God forgives me for all those people I killed in World War II? Now, that was his personal struggle, and I said, I think he does. And he said, no, that's too easy, too easy. A price needs to be paid. And I said, yes, a price does need to be paid, and it has been, just not by you. See, that's how accusation works. Those voices in our head, they won't give up. We, we can't get them out of our heads, right? So we try to cover over our flaws through achievement or glossy lifestyle or a lot of religious activity. And the cross is about a lot of things, but one of them is God meeting us at a psychological level and saying, I know you're never going to feel free. I know you're never going to feel grace unless a price is paid. And so I'm going to pay this price for you. Who or what are your accusers? Jesus has silenced their voices. Not that we don't keep screwing up, we do. Sometimes it's almost automatic, I know I do, right? But even in that, God says, because of Jesus, I declare you whole and holy and I want to be with you. And this is so different because the world just offers a whole lot of accusation, doesn't it? 
bosses, peers, teachers, family members, coworkers, all kinds of stuff, culture. So let me use all the authority that God has given me as your pastor and speak for him. Jesus says to you, I don't care what you've done. I want to be a part of your life. Yeah, but Jesus, you don't understand. There was this time way back when I did this terrible. Jesus says, you. No, you. I want to be with you. Yeah, but Jesus, you don't get it. I don't even want to stop sinning, okay? I actually kind of like sinning, and I'm going to keep doing it. Jesus goes, I get that. I still want to be with you. Yeah, that's nice, Jesus, but what about that habit I can't seem to break? I want to be with you. Don't bother me with all that other stuff. I took care of it 2,000 years ago on a cross. Now, let's you and I go have some fun. He has silenced your accusers. God says you are forgiven, period, end of sentence, full stop, no qualifiers, no caveats, no fast-talking man that comes on at the end of the ad telling you all the ways the medicine can kill you. (laughs) If God says that you are clean and whole and holy, who are you to argue with the God of the universe? And who are your accusers? Who dares to point a finger at you if you are God's beloved? No one. You are free. Well, I don't feel it. How can I feel it? Well, a couple ways. One, get honest with a trustworthy person. Because when we kind of talk about our fears and our failures and hear someone say, these things don't define you, I love you anyway, it makes Jesus' grace feel more real. Second, prayer. Ask Jesus, help. Would you help me to see myself the way you see me? And then third, worship. Music, in particular, is a great way, I think, to experience the presence of God. I've told you about a priest named Brennan Manning, and one time a man came to him for counseling, and he was addicted to drugs, this man was. He'd had six marriages, and Brennan Manning listened and was thinking and thought, should I quote doctrine at him? Should I, should I point out his destructive lifestyle? But when he opened his mouth, the only thing that came out was, I have a word for you from your brother Jesus. Welcome home. And this man said, who is this Jesus that would welcome someone like me? I think I need to know him. And later that night, Brennan Manning was reviewing it in his head and wondering, should I have been harder on this guy to teach him a lesson? And he started to pray, and he just, out out of his mouth, he said, Lord, forgive me for being too merciful to a sinner, for if it is a fault, it is a fault I learned from you. Now, that man did go on to become a Christian, and many things in his lifestyle changed in many ways, but notice what changed that man. It wasn't a lecture. It was grace that made his lifestyle different. And you see that in this story. After Zacchaeus experiences the grace of Jesus, what does he do? He says, I give half my possessions to the poor. The law only required 10%. He gives half. And if I've cheated anybody, I will pay back four times the amount. That always drives accountants crazy, right? Like, how does that work? But the law only required 20%. He goes, I'll go 400%. Grace has done what no law can do. Changed him so much, he joyfully goes above and beyond the law. But notice the order. Did Zacchaeus go, okay, I'm going to give it all back, and then Jesus goes, okay, now I can come and eat with you. That's not the order, right? The order is the other way around. Jesus says, I'm going to come and eat with you, and Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give it all back. See, most people know deep down when they're messing up. I know I do. And if they just feel safe enough, often they will self-confess. And then we can say, how can I help you find a different way? How can I help you be who God says you already are? See, too often the church paradigm has been behave, believe, belong. Do right, think right, and then you're one of us. But the way of Jesus is the opposite. It's belong first, and then we begin to believe, and then our behavior changes. 
And this is what changed the Roman culture. As Christians showed grace to people, some of them horrible people, army commanders that were oppressing all kinds of people, tax collectors, all kinds of folks, Christians showed grace to them, met their practical needs, and slowly those folks started following Jesus, which gradually over time changed that very violent culture. Grace is more effective than lecturing. Grace is more effective than political action to change a culture. Politics is important, but it can't change a human heart. But change enough hearts and you've changed a culture. It's slower, it's harder, but more effective. And I think we need it in our culture. There's a lot of accusation. This summer, I, I went on a social media fast because there was just so many angry political posts. Right? The left was mad, the right was mad, I was getting mad. Not at anyone in particular, just mad that they were all mad. Right? And that's bad. It made me sad, and I wanted to be glad. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam, I am. In a world where there's so much accusation, all the time, amazing grace. How sweet that sound. That changes wretches like you and like me, and one person at a time changes a whole culture. See, the world offers us this binary choice, condemn or condone. And we do it to ourselves, self-condemnation, self-justification. Right? But whenever Jesus was offered a binary choice, what did he do? He always said, none of the above. There's a third way. There's not one case where you see Jesus condemning a, quote, sinner, but neither do you see him condoning their sin. He doesn't say, hey, Zacchaeus, this oppression thing you got going on, way to be you, buddy. No, condemn, condone. There's a third C called conversation, relationship. And Jesus always drove toward that, I'm coming to eat with you. Jesus macromanaged sin so that we do not have to micromanage it in ourself or anybody else. Now, there's a question I'm sure some of you maybe have been thinking. Maybe you've already composed the email to me in your mind, but before you hit send, let me just address it. Yes, Grace, Scott, I understand Grace, but isn't there a time we have to speak the truth in love? Absolutely. But I think we misunderstand that phrase. I think we think it means just to tell the truth a little bit nicer. That's not what it means. Truth in love means I'm going to tell you the truth inside a relationship where you know that I love you so that when I tell you this truth, you're going to know it's out of love, not because of my moral code or my political agenda or anything else, but it's about you. And I'm going to say there's some specific things, not general, this is bad, but in your life that is hurting you or hurting others. And there's a better way. How can I help you get there? It's not saying it nicer. It's saying it in relationship where you've journeyed with someone. And how soon you tell that truth, I think, depends on the severity of the damage, whatever they're doing is. Some things, they have more damage, so you've got to speak sooner. Others, you can wait. Right? And yes, there's a time to tell the truth in love, and yes, there's a time for tough love, absolutely. But if i got to err, I'm going to err on the side of grace, for that is a fault I learned from my Lord. So many people's perceptions is that we Christians have been yelling at the culture, arguing with the culture, demanding of the culture for decades. Question, how's that working out for us? Has it expanded God's kingdom? Are people flocking to the churches these days? Most of the world knows what we're against. We all, we've been crystal clear about that. What they don't know is do we love them? And for many people, their question isn't does God exist? They actually think he does. Their question is does God love me? And is he for me? And for some of those people, we're the only Jesus they're ever going to see to show them that he cares. Recently read an article by a young man who left his church, but he kind of wants to come back. And this is what he wrote. 
This is what he wrote. He says, it's here in my screwed up, doubting, disillusioned meanness that I've been waiting for you, church, to step in with this supposedly audacious love of Jesus thing I hear so much about and for you to make it real. Many of us are weary of feeling like nothing more than a religious agenda, an argument to win, a point to make, a cause to defend. We want to be more than a notch on your salvation belt, another number to pad the end of your stats. We've been praying for you to stop evangelizing us and fighting us and sin-diagnosing us long enough to simply hear us, even if we are the problem. Even if we are the woman in adultery or the rebellious prodigal or the demon-riddled young man, we can't be anything else right now in this moment, and we need a church big enough and strong enough and loving enough, not just for us as we might one day be, but for who we are right now and can't help it. We still believe in a God that big, so even if we walk away, we're not walking away from faith. It just seems faith is more reachable elsewhere right now. And I know you'll argue that you're doing and saying all these things because you love us, and I understand that, but you need to know from our shoes, it feels less like love and more like space and silence. So yes, church, even if you're right, even if we're totally wrong, even if we're all petty and self-centered and hypocritical and critical, and I'll say it, sinful, we're still the ones searching for a place where we can be known and belong, a place where it feels like God lives and changes lives, and you're the ones who can show it to us. Even if the problem is me, it's me you're supposed to be reaching, church. So for the love of God, literally, reach already. Would you just please reach? Bell Press, can we be that church? Can we be that church that reaches with the life-changing, culture-changing grace of Jesus? Yes, Jesus tells us not to do certain things because they hurt us and others. Yes, 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 yes. But he changes us through grace. So here's your homework. First, you can't give what you don't have, so receive Jesus' grace for you. Through prayer, through worship, through you know, asking Jesus, say, Jesus, here's where I feel accused. And hear Jesus say, they accuse me too, and I am your pain bearer. And if as you've gone through this sermon, you've thought, gosh, am I too judgmental? And do I show enough grace? Just know, okay, know that if you're asking that question, you're on the right track. And even if you get judgmental from time to time, there's grace for that too. Okay, it'd be really bad if you left a sermon on grace feeling condemned, right? So that would not be what I'm going after here. So... There, you know, I, I get judgmental. We all get judgmental. Right? I get judgmental of judgmental people, right? Like meta-judgmental, right? Like it's, we all do it. There's grace for that too. And then second, having received his grace, give it away. Are there people in your life who are far from God? How can you be the best Jesus to them that you can be? I'll close with this uh, example about a pastor named Hugh Halter. I mentioned him a couple weeks ago, and he's a pastor. And a while back, his wife and daughter went to get tattoos on their wrist as kind of a mother-daughter to remember each other thing. And Hugh went with them and really hit it off with a tattoo artist named Sean. And Sean is this kind of classic hard rock, angry atheist guy. He's got some lifestyle issues. He owns this tattoo parlor, also sells marijuana from it. It's Colorado. It's legal, all of that. Well, Hugh, even though he's a pastor, he just kind of really hit it off with Sean, started to see him regularly. And one day he walked in, and Sean had this weird look on his face, and he said, Mr. H., which is what he calls him, before we do anything else, I just want to say, whenever I see your name on my calendar, I get super excited. You've become sort of a dad, best friend, sensei-type guy to me, and I just love the way your family treats me. So I wanted to give you something to say thank you. And he hands him this big bag of marijuana. <laughs> you know, Hugh's a pastor, it never happened to me before, so Hugh goes, well, well, well thank you, I'm, I'm honored, right? And, and Sean said, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what you pastors do with this stuff, but, you know, it's important to me, so here. 
Okay, that's just one moment in their relationship, but in it you can see Sean's heart starting to change. There's a conversation. Who is this Jesus? I'm kind of, in, you've got me interested, right? Hugh didn't lecture him, just loved him, and now Sean is opening his life up to a pastor, something he probably thought he would never do in a million years. Now that story is still in process. There's no, and now he's a Christian ending, yet, anyway. And I could tell you stories like that. The Brenning Manning story I told you, that young man, he changed his life. A whole bunch of stuff got cleaned up, right? But I told this story on purpose because it's still in process. And we need to be people willing to stay in process with people simply to show them the love of Jesus, no other agenda. So it's still in process. However, I bet you're probably wondering something, right? Like you're wondering, what did the pastor do with the weed, right? <laughs> Well, here's the end of the story. He raises chickens for both eggs and meat, and he'd recently slaughtered one of the chickens, but he didn't do it away from all the others as he should have. So all the other chickens were stressed out, and they stopped laying eggs. So he gave them the weed. Worked like a charm. <laughs> I bet those were some omelets, man. <laughs> There's a, a guy on my sermon review team said, you know, it kind of reverses the old political slogan, a chicken in every pot, right? It's a pot, pot in every chicken, right? <laughs> Now, the point here is not to mellow out like the chickens, okay? The point is not to be passive in the face that of all that needs healing in our culture. The point is not to be passive. It's to be active with the grace of God that changes us and changes the world, to offer something radically different that really works, historically proven to work. It's what changed the Roman Empire. It's what changed me. As I've said before, I'm, I'm a bunch of contradictions. I'm, love, I'm loving, yet capable of intense anger at times. Sometimes over the stupid stuff, right? Like, my latte's cold. Where's Jesus when it hurts, right? <laughs> I'm concerned about others, but I can be completely indifferent to their needs. I'm committed to purity in thought, word, and deed, and yet still have thoughts I wish I did not have. I'm a saint with an incredible capacity for sin. And I'm a pastor, so y'all must be really a mess. But it is this mess that God says he loves and welcomes home. Not because of anything I've done to deserve it, I haven't, but because of what Jesus did for me. And when I got a hold of that grace, it changed a whole lot of stuff in my life. And this is how you change a culture. One person at a time. One heart at a time. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let your goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. See, it's God's goodness that changes us. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love almost every day. But here's my heart, Lord. Take it, change it, seal it. Fit it for your courts above. So Jesus, fill us so filled with your grace that it sloshes out on everyone around us. It just overflows. We leak it wherever we go because we stand in the freedom of your forgiveness and we give it to others in a way that changes them and our world. In your name, Lord, amen.